and we're going to uh, hook up here, we believe, a, uh, the PowerPoint, and uh, while that is being uh, worked together, a um, couple notes of thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks to Brother Herb for picking me up at the hotel. My car would not start. I uh, don't know why. I had plenty of time planned in my schedule and went to put the key in and nothing. And I thought that was odd and called AAA and of course they were unable to do anything. So I'm very grateful to be here tonight. And secondly, I want to thank you for your help to Pinebrook Bible Conference, uh, especially during uh, these tough times. Uh, Pinebrook, um, like many other ministries, are really suffering right now uh, because of finances. And uh, just to give you a little background, we were doing very, very well camper days, um, averaging a little over 14% ahead this past year and uh, going into June, but our income was, uh, was off and uh, that created a problem for us. And this is the second time now in my tenure uh, that we've struggled with finances. And as you can imagine, that's quite a burden. And uh, we're very grateful to the Lord for your assistance, and um, we will be very faithful in making sure that uh, we can handle this and do so quickly in an expedient manner. So thank you for standing with us. Um, Pinebrook has as its mission that uh, Pinebrook Bible Conference offers real hope to the real world by committing all of our resources for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been doing that for 77 years. That's how long Pinebrook has been in existence. And we thank the Lord for what he has done during the course of that time. Um, during the summer, Pinebrook becomes a family Bible conference. And that's when uh, various churches and individuals and families come and enjoy uh, what the Lord has for them at Pinebrook. Uh, Pinebrook is perfect for families, as your church well knows. Good food, uh, great fun and fellowship. And uh, the spiritual refreshment is terrific, and it costs so little, and yet you get so much. And this past summer, we were talking about the absolutely awesome glory of God, and we had a couple new things that have taken place this year. The first one is Noel's Nook uh, Campfire Arena, and uh, this is something that my staff, due to a donation, was able to build, and they did a really beautiful job. And uh, we had a, an exciting time during the summer as we dedicated this facility to the Lord on Wednesday nights. And um, I'm convinced that a lot of people are going to come to know the Lord right there uh, at that campfire arena. It just seems to be a, a special spot uh, for people to make decisions for Jesus Christ. And we believe uh, that it's going to be there. And we've already had people who have committed themselves to the Lord uh, at that campfire. Something else we did was we had our banquet uh, this year over in Fellowship Hall. It was entitled the Steps to the Summit Banquet, and um, we are getting ready to totally renovate and, and winterize our guest rooms. And it's a huge project, uh, but we believe that God will allow us to complete this uh, within a certain time period. Uh, everything came to a halt, however, uh, when the finances kind of dried up on us. So right now we, we have battened down the hatches, and we're going to try to make it through the year uh, before we do anything else uh, of that nature. On the, uh, the sermon notes that we presented to you, uh, we've got some upcoming events. Of course, we had a great RWR and its staff this summer, and uh, we thank your group for the work that they did while they were with us uh, at Pinebrook this weekend, and they always do such a nice job. Um, in the, uh, on the back of uh, the sermon notes are some of the events that are coming up. A couple things uh, real quickly just to mention to you. 
Um, the first weekend in December, we're having a craft retreat, a two-night or one-night deal, set Friday into Saturday. At the same time, we're having a, a retreat entitled, um, uh, it, it's related to grief share, Encountering Grief, Encountering God. And uh, Jennifer Sands, who is an author, and her husband was killed in the Twin Towers, and she's made the speaking circuit an excellent speaker. She's one of our speakers for that weekend. It should be a good event. And the other events are listed there as well. Let me give you real quick uh, top ten reasons to pray, give, and attend Pinebrook. All right? Top ten reasons to pray, give, and attend Pinebrook. Number ten, we frown upon gambling, so Mount Airy and Atlantic City are out. Uh, there they go. Number nine, the Poconos are still the honeymoon capital of the world, and we've got a honeymoon cottage to prove it. And, um, uh-oh, what happened? There it is, number nine, going a little slow here. There it is, the honeymoon cottage, and the inside of the honeymoon cottage. Number eight, no more beautiful place to get married than in the Poconos, and we have a wedding chapel for that purpose. There it is. Number seven, what happens at Vegas stays at Vegas, including your money. What happens at Pinebrook lasts a lifetime and into all eternity, and how true that is. Number six, for one family of four day at Disney, you can come to Pinebrook for a whole week. The price at Disney includes one-day hopper passes, lunch and dinner at the theme park, hotel accommodation for one-night souvenirs, transportation from downtown to Orlando, and tipping the parking attendant so that you get a good parking spot. I beat it. All right, there goes the fine print. Number five, it's the Fellowship Hall, the Bible Fellowship Church. What would you do here at the church if you did not have a Fellowship Hall? Well, it would be kind of tough. And uh, we have one for the denomination. And, uh, and it, number four, which leads me into it, it's your conference center, discounts for everyone. And, and we do, um, right off the top, we give 10% to all Bible Fellowship Church people. Uh, greater discounts for pastors, retired pastors, missionaries. Snow Glow is about at 30% off. So uh, we're grateful that we can be a part of, of the denomination and a part of your church. Number three, it's filled with babes. There's one of them. Uh, how about these two lovely kids? Met at Pinebrook in 1994, got married in 2001. That story could be told probably hundreds of times. This couple met at our Senior Saints retreat in October, married seven months later. Number two, how about this guy? My own son, uh, Josh, who got saved at Pinebrook Bible Conference. And the number one reason to pray, give, and attend Pinebrook Bible Conference, soul saved, lives changed, Enough said. And uh, we hope that you will consider coming to Pinebrook uh, this coming summer, um, as well as uh, the various other events that, uh, that are taking place. Well, each year at Pinebrook, we try to have a theme during the summertime. And uh, some years ago, we had uh, the survivors in our Savior were more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And then we went with a family theme one particular summer, celebrate the family. And in 2008, we had the theme, Carry the Torch. And we spoke about this in several different ways, but especially in regard to evangelism and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the theme verse came from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. In fact, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, with me tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. The Apostle Paul knew something about the Olympics, or certainly athletic events. Saul of Tarsus was a thoroughly red-blooded young American man. Wait a second, he wasn't an American, a Jewish man. But he was interested in games and sports and in everything that would challenge a nor normal, clean, and decent young fellow. In fact, 
during Paul's day and in this part of the world, there were four major games held in Greece, in Nemea, in Delphi, and in Olympia, and as well at the Ismos of Corinth. It was the last of these games, the Ismian athletic events, organized in 571 B.C. and held in the spring of the first and third year of the Olympiad. Even back then, the Olympics was every four years, and they used it as a measurement of time. Well, this was held twice before the Olympics was, uh, during a four-year period. I think Paul would have an intimate knowledge of what was taking place during those games. The Ismos of Corinth was located about nine miles from Corinth. And Ismos is a narrow strip of land. It's like a land bridge connecting two bodies of land. The one at Corinth connects the mainland of Greece with the Peloponnese Peninsula. And I believe that Paul could have spent a great deal of time at the Ismos of Corinth. You see, people would stay in Corinth. They lived there. And then they would go to these athletic events. And since it was nine miles away... You didn't want to be traveling back and forth every day. That was impossible to do. And so they would go there for the extent of time of the, of the, the games, and, and they would stay overnight there. And if they were to do that, they would naturally need some tents in which to reside while they were there. And then, no doubt, there were some entrepreneurial types um, who figured there's an audience here. They need to eat, and so they would set up their tents, and they would sell food. I understand that funnel cake was a big thing back then. Okay, maybe not. But at any rate, they would be selling food in tents. Uh, and then you had other people that were selling trinkets and whatever else they had, and they were setting up tents. And then you had tents that were coming down, tents being blown over, tents that were torn. And you guys are Bible students. I know that. What was the secular occupation of the Apostle Paul? He was a tent maker. So naturally, he very well could have been involved with, with these events, going to the Ismos at Corinth and spending that time. It does seem a bit strange that a Jewish Christian would be using these games as an analogy, especially since this was the type of entertainment typically considered forbidden territory for Jews. Very conservative Jews rejected the games because of the hedonistic nature of the games, the games were often used as a tool for worshiping gods and or religious festivals. And in fact, the Ismian games took place at the Temple of Poseidon, the god of the sea. Finally, they did not participate because most of the games were held en naturel, uh, meaning they were not wearing clothes. And that would be something that they would, uh, they would stay away from. Fortunately, I have no photos of that. So, since Paul had intimate knowledge of the games and the contests, and since he believed his hearers would understand the analogies and the metaphors, he proceeds. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, I begin reading. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. There are some assumptions that the Apostle Paul makes here that everybody would understand, especially those to whom he's speaking. The first thing right off the bat is races. 
everyone would understand races. The Ismian Games, as well as the Olympics, had all sorts of contests from leaping and running and throwing discuses and quates and boxing and wrestling. Races often included chariot races and horse races and foot races, and the foot races were always in multiples of 200 meters. Now, there was a reason for that. If you watched the Olympics back um, just a few years ago, you saw a beautiful oval track that was in what they called the bird's nest in Beijing, China. And it was beautiful and state-of-the-art. I think the thing that I like most about it is when the guys are running, they have a camera that's following them and going right with them. And boy, that's just neat to see every muscle as it is being moved and, and as they are running. That is not the type of track they had back then. Back then, they had a field. And they would measure out 200 meters, and, and you ran down the field 200 meters. And if the race was 400 meters, you turned around and you came back. Now, I'm going to challenge you here with math just a little bit. If it was 800 meters, how many times would you run? I know some of you grew up in the Lebanon School District, and this is going to be a challenge. Well, no, you, you know how far it is. It's down and back and down and back. So not only did you need to have strong legs, which would be very important, uh, but... Elbows helped a little bit, too, because when you were turning around, it would be good to be able to, to knock a few people off a little bit. Running in swiftness was considered an extraordinary virtue back then because it fitted men eminently for war as it was fought. You see, if you were chasing the enemy, you wanted to be fast so that you could catch the enemy. And then you would attack them and kill them, and you would win. If you were the enemy, you wanted to be faster than those who were chasing you so that you could get back to the fort and to safety. So they did a lot of running back then. Paul identifies that as Christians, we are in a race as well. Now the question is, what kind of race is he talking about here? Well, I, th I can think of three possibilities. One, he might re be referring to the race of life in general. If you take this somewhat out of the context of the, the passage, and yet it is a truism, we are involved in a race, in a, in a race in life. And when you accept Christ as your Savior, you kind of get started, and, and then you run until you come to the finish line. Some of us are closer to the finish line than others, but all of us need to run this race and to run it well. Um, that is a, certainly a valid way of looking at that particular verse and just kind of pulling it out as being one of those things that you type up on a 3 by 5 card and you put by your computer monitor. That's a great verse, and it's a great way to look at it. There's another way that you could look at it as being a precursor to chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 10, he's talking about idolatry, and we need to discipline ourselves so that we do not fall into that trap of idolatry. So we're running in a race, and we're trying to stay strong uh, in, for the Lord Jesus Christ and not falling into the trap. I don't think that's exactly the way it is. I think he's talking about winning souls. And, and to see that, go back to verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, mind you, but the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I have become weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I may save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete? 
I think the race he's talking about is winning souls for Christ. He's suggesting two ways in which to do this. Self-denial, verses 19 to 23. Becoming all things to all people, so that by all means he may win some. And self-control, verses 24 to 27, especially in a spiritual sense. At any rate, the first assumption is about races. Everybody understood races. The second assumption is that runners run. You have a race and you run. Everyone knows that. When the race is taking place, you have runners and they're going to compete. And that's a pretty good assumption to make. My illustration to this point is someone you may or may not know. He's a pastor of our York Bible Fellowship Church, Pastor Ken Keeler and his lovely wife, Linda. Uh, he and I worked together at our New Mexico mission, when it was a mission, as we were trying to get it up to church status, and uh, he and I would go out there three or four times a year, work with the elders, sort of like surrogate elders, and, and did the best we could to help that particular church in that situation. I enjoyed working with Ken. Ken is a very likable fellow. He's also very gullible. And that gives a guy like me the will to live. Um, looking at things in which maybe I can snatch him up on and catch him. And so it's a challenge for me every day, waking up thinking of something new. And on this one particular occasion, I said to him, I said, Ken, I could beat you in a race. Now, Ken is also very blunt. And his response was, look at you. You know, just like that. Look at you. Well, I had had knee surgery uh, not that long before. And I'm not as in good shape as I am today. So, but, um, you know, there... There was no way that I could beat this kind of race, all right? Just no way. However, he didn't know that, all right? And I kept building it up. In fact, I told him stories, some apocryphal stories. That's all a part of the gig. That's all under the law. You're allowed to do that. Um, some were a little more off than others. In fact, the, uh, the one story I told him, which is totally true, uh, went out for football in 10th grade. I beat everybody on the team in running. They were all wearing pads. I was not, but I didn't tell them that part. I still beat them all. So we could do this race. And I even got Linda, who happens to be kind of gullible, into this as well. And so we got to the end of the hotel, and I said, okay, we're going to race. On your mark, it's set, go. And I was right here. Ken was on my right, Linda on my left. And they took off like jackrabbits. Boy, Ken is fast. Linda's pretty fast, too. I didn't move a muscle. I, I wasn't going to run. I wasn't racing anybody that day. About halfway down, Linda realized this, and, and she stopped. I'm convinced that Ken would still be running today had Linda not stopped him, all right? In a race, in a real race, everybody runs. When the gun goes off, you run. Uh, you don't have any sitting down and doing nothing. They're runners, all right? In fact, if you watch the Olympics, you've watched racing on television, uh, you know, the... Uh, the ladies that race always look great, you know, and they do their nails and stuff, and I, I don't know why, I, I don't know what that does for them, but I've never seen this. They're, they're in the blocks ready to run, and the gun goes off, and I've never seen a gal doing her nails. No, no, you're not there to do the nails, you're there to race. You do the nails ahead of time. They had some commercials about learning to speak Chinese, you know, Rosetta Stone or one of those uh, companies. And, and I've never seen this. Maybe you have. I've never seen any guy in the blocks, the gun goes off, and he's there reading a book, reading how to learn Chinese. Never saw it. Because when you're in the blocks, you are there to run. Runners run. Will Rogers said, even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there. And, and in the race as a Christian, we are all running as well. During that summer, I spoke about carrying the torch. I noted that we are all torchbearers. 
We are all lights, just what Jesus told us about. He said, not only are you salt, but you are light. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're either good lights, good torch bearers, or poor ones, but we're all in the race. Here's the question. As people look at your light, what do they see? If you know Christ as your Savior, you are a light. All right? you, you are the light of the world. Now, what do they see? Do they see a bright, shining light? And do they say, if ever I want to be a Christian, that's the guy I want to be like. Because they see that light shining for the glory of God. Or are you like one of those little birthday candles that you have a hard time lighting? And, and even if you do get it lit, it just kind of flickers and it's about ready to burn out. Somewhere in the middle. You are the light of the world, the Scripture says. Very clear, Christ said that. The question is, what type of light are you? And in a race, everybody runs. And the light of the world, you are the light of the world. It's a race. Runners run. The third assumption, only one gains the prize. Only one wins the prize. You uh, you can only have one winner, even in that tight race that Michael Phelps won by one one one-hundredth of a second, the length of a fingernail. He still won. You only have one winner. Before the Olympics, I was trying to follow the local talent. Uh, local for me would have been down in the Lehigh Valley. And, and so I was watching the newspaper, and there was a swimmer from Emass High School that was really fast. And she had set all the records, and, and she was going to go to the tryouts, and she went. And um, she ended up in 114th place. And you're saying, that's horrible. I would ask you, in what bracket would you come in 114th? Anything? Maybe in an eating contest. I know you people like to eat here, but uh, in all America, she's still a very fast runner. But they don't take 114 to the Olympics. Then I was following a guy from my high school alma mater uh, who was a hurdler for Georgia or one of those uh, colleges, universities down south. And uh, he came in fourth place. He was four one-hundredths of a second off the winning time. But he came in fourth place. They only take three the Olympics. He didn't make it. You only have one winner when you're in a race. There, there, now, that may be difficult for us to sound, but only one can win. Only one wins the prize. And when they do win, there's various wreaths that they won back in those days. The Olympics was the wreath of olives, and, and you can see the list of them. But there was more than just the prize that was received. Everyone thronged to see and congratulate the winners, their relatives and friends and countrymen shedding tears of tenderness and joy. They would lift the winner up on their shoulders, and they would carry him or her into the city. Nine miles, that's a long way to carry them. But they would carry them in there throwing flowers, and they would live a life of uh, acclaim and praise and fame and that of a hero. That would never happen today, would it? Are you kidding me? Uh, You win the Olympics and you are set for life, financially especially. In fact, uh, Mark Spitz, some of you remember that name. Uh, He's the fellow whose records were broken by Michael Phelps. Um, 38 years ago, those records were broken. Mark Spitz is still on the speaking tour today. If you wanted to book him here to come to your church, he would tell you about his winnings 38 years later, the man is still making money on what he did 38 years ago. That would be pretty great if you can get that gig, I suppose, but that's what he's doing. Well, you get an analogy breakdown at this point. Although in a race only one wins, in the Christian race, every believer who will pay the price of careful training can win. We're not competing against each other. We are running together. 
Maybe you heard the story of Sarah Tukolsky from Western Oregon. She hit her first and only home run in, in a game, and she was so excited that she, she missed first base. Um, and about halfway between first and second, the, the, uh, the coach realized this and called her back, and she turned, and as she was turning to go back, she blew out her knee. So she crawled back to first base. There was no way she was going to get around the bases. Well, her teammates wanted to go out and help her, and, and the umpire said, no, you can't do that. That's against the rules. She's stuck at first base. And, and the manager could have put in a pinch runner, but then it would not have been a home run. They would have been stuck at first base. Uh, there was really nothing they could do until the first baseman of the opposing team, Mallory Holtman, um, from Central Washington University, and their number one home run hitter, asked the ump if she and a teammate could help Sarah and the ump could find nothing in the rule books against it. So Mallory and her teammate carried Sarah to each base, gently allowing her to touch the bag until she had scored. I noted that as an example of running the race together, which is indeed what we are doing. John MacArthur said that the race is against the obstacles, practical, physical, and spiritual, that would hinder us. In a sense, every Christian runs his or her own race, enabling each of us to be a winner in winning souls for Christ. Well, if runners win, we can see what their prizes are. What about the Christians? Do we have prizes? Notice verse 35. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. As you go through scriptures, you see various crowns that it appears we will win. The crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown. The crown of righteousness, every believer has the righteousness in Jesus Christ, but those who are obedient to God, uh, it seems, will receive this crown. The crown of life, again, every believer has life in Christ, but specifically those who patiently suffer for the Lord, it appears, will receive this crown, and then the crown of glory, and it seems to be going to those who minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, there's other crowns, but all of them we will take and throw at our Savior's feet. Well, the assumptions are pretty clear. Everybody understood races. Uh, in races, runners run, and they do so to win. Uh, in fact, only one wins the prize. That is, in a regular race, in the Christian race, we all win, providing we run. Well, let's come up with an application. And if you're taking notes, uh, that's on the inside of your, of your sermon notes. What's Paul's application? I think there are two things here. Number one, we need to keep our eye on the goal. Paul continues with the running theme in verse 26, and he says, I do not run aimlessly. Does anyone ever run aimlessly? Does anything ever run aimlessly? Well, cats do. If you own cats, you know that all of a sudden they're in one room and they decide to go to another room. They don't know why. They just stun that. They just run. Little kids, they tend to run aimlessly when they finally learn they have legs, and off they go, and boy, you've got to watch them. Uh, they might run away from you. I don't know if you remember watching, possibly you've watched it on video or certainly on TV, but there was a movie that came out in 1994 entitled Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump ran aimlessly. Forrest Gump, kind of an interesting fellow, his girlfriend Jenny leaves him, and he starts to run. And then he explained why he ran, and he said that day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. So I ran to the end of the road, and when I got there, I thought maybe I'd run to the end of town. When I got there, I thought maybe I'd run clear across Greenbow County. I figured since I had gone this far, I might just run across the great state of Alabama. 
That's what I did. I ran across Alabama for no particular reason. I just kept on going. I ran clear to the ocean. And when I got there, I figured since I had gone this far, I might as well turn around and just keep on going. When I got to another ocean, I figured since I had gone this far, I might as well just turn back and keep on running. That, my friends, is stupidity. All right? You, you don't do that. Nobody in life does that. There's no way that they can do it. Paul is not running all over the track. He is focused. What's his focus? Well, my contention is today, I mean, it could be that he's running a race in life and we want to run it well, and I think that's good. But I think his focus is in winning souls for Christ. I think that is what motivated Paul the Apostle to live and to minister, is that each morning he would wake up thinking of souls that he was going to have the opportunity to share Christ with. Every day he would think of that and pray as he got up. And every day when he went to bed, uh, he would thank God for it. And you're saying, well, how do you know that, Dan? Well, it's pretty obvious by the style of his life. Um, he, he went down to the river, and he's witnessing the people that are there. He goes into the marketplace, he's witnessing the people. He goes to Mars Hills, he's witnessing the people. Wherever he went, that's what he did. That was his focus. He switches metaphors on us here, and he goes with a boxing analogy. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. There are a couple ways of looking at this. I was thinking of it more in a contemporary way. And when you're watching boxing, if you were to watch that on television, you know, they kind of come out of the locker room there, and they're pumping their fists. You know, they're not hitting anything. They're beating the air. And I don't think he's talking about that at all. I think he's talking about actually in the boxing match. And, you know, if you're in a boxing match with somebody and you're beating the air, guess what is happening to you? You are being pummeled by that other person. All right? You're missing. They're not. Okay? I think he was focused, and that's his purpose for why he says this. Paul did not want to waste the blows or the strikes. They all had aim and they purpose. And purpose. He was not running just to run. The Christian life has a reason for running. Our goal is to please our Savior. Elsewhere, Paul noted forgetting what is behind straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So number one, we need to keep our eye on the goal. This is something Olympian Matt Emmons from New Jersey needs to remember. He had the gold medal in sight. He was one shot away from claiming victory in the 2004 Olympic 50-meter three-position rifle event. He didn't even need a bullseye to win. His final shot merely needed to be on target. And so he took his rifle and he aimed for the target. Only he aimed for the wrong target. He hit the wrong target. Guess how many points you get if you hit the wrong target? Zero. No gold, no silver, no bronze, nothing. I was actually sharing this story at a sister church of yours, Lebanon Valley Bible Church. And a guy came up to me afterwards, he says, I know Matt Emmons. That's when a minister starts to die several deaths. Did I tell the right story or not? He says his daughter, who went to Lebanon Valley College, is a rifle woman, and she was standing right there as well. Very beautiful girl, and I thought, who would ever date her? She carries rifles with her. But at any rate, um, they've competed together. And, and he said that, uh, that not only did he miss it in, in, 19, in 2004, he went back to the last Olympics and his gun misfired. 
And uh, he still got a medal, but he didn't get the gold. And, of course, here's the American way of thinking. He's going back to the next Olympics to get the gold. So if you watch this kind of thing, this is the guy to look at. Keep your eye on the goal. What is the goal? I think he's talking about winning souls. I think the focus is on winning souls. Secondly, we need to maintain self-control and discipline. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control. It was well known that the athletes of Paul's day had to keep their bodies under control in order to compete. Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus noted the discipline for the first century A.D. athlete. He said, do you wish to gain the prize of the Olympic Games? Consider what you need to do. Keep a strict regiment. Live on food which is unpleasant. Abstain from delicacies. And on and on and on it was as he told them what you needed to do. And we know that if anybody is going to go to the Olympics today, they spend hours upon hours and days upon days and years upon years of practice. In his 2004 autobiography, Beneath the Surface, Michael Phelps noted that he averaged 75 kilometers, that's 45 miles a week in swimming, and he had probably taken no more than four days off in the four years leading up to Athens. That's what it takes to be an athlete. Do you remember hearing the discussion about what he eats when he is in training? Michael Phelps consumes 12,000 calories a day uh, while he's in training. And here's what he eats. Uh, three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onion, tomatoes. One five-egg omelet, a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast with powdered sugar, three chocolate chip cookies or pancakes, rather, two cups of coffee. And that's just for breakfast. All right. I can't imagine what his lunch and supper is like. Listen, listen, my friend, this is the type of diet I want to go on. And somebody said, if you're swimming 45 miles a week, you can go on that type of diet. Well, discipline and self-control are needed to compete as Christians as well. Self-control happens to be a part of the, the fruit of the Spirit. It ought to be something we develop over time. Paul's wording here is critical. He, he says uh, discipline literally means to give himself a, a black eye to beat black and blue. To keep it under control means bring under subjection, reduce the servitude and slavery. Paul's desire is to keep his body into control, to exercise self-control and, and dedicates himself to that purpose. He's not saying that he abuses himself, but rather he keeps himself in proper spiritual condition. Hebrews 12 gives us another analogy with this. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. The laying aside of every weight gives the picture of a runner who, instead of coming out there in the tight shorts that they often wear, comes out with a big parka and clodhopper boots and, and a big hat and gloves, and they can't run like that. You need to get rid of those weights. You need to get rid of them so that you can run properly. You might remember hearing the story of famed Olympian Jim Thorpe, H.A. Ironside, who used to be a speaker at Pinebrook just last year. No, no, that back in the 30s. At any rate, he tells a story that when he was doing some work with Native Americans in New Mexico, he happened upon a trader's store in which a group of Indians had surrounded his Christian interpreter, an Indian himself who was reading the latest news from Stockholm, Sweden, in 1912. The Indians were very interested and excited to learn how one of their own, Jim Thorpe, had dominated the games. In fact, the King of Sweden said as he took his hand, You, sir, are the greatest amateur athlete in the world today. Well, a few weeks later, same scene, same interpreter, Indians surrounding him, reading the newspaper. 
They had learned that Jim Thorpe had to give all his winnings back. It was learned that while a student in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, he had received $5 a week for playing ball. This was a village baseball team. Other guys did it. They used aliases. Jim Thorpe was too honest to do that. Didn't know the rule about not having been paid, and so he had to send the medals back. Seems a shame that this had to happen, but this was back when it was truly amateurs who were competing. Not sure that that is what will happen to us, but hearing the disappointment on our Savior's lips concerning what we could have done and been will be worse than anything Jim Thorpe or real cheaters have done. The application is twofold. Keep your eye on the goal. Keep focused. Look towards winning souls and maintain self-control and discipline so that you can actually pull it off. The point of Paul's analogy is this. If they, the athletes, had done it for objects so comparatively unimportant as the attainment of earthly garland, surely it was proper for us to obtain a crown which should not fade away. Can anybody here name a famed Olympian that has survived the test of time as far as name from back in Paul's day? Well, probably not. Anybody from the Ismian Games? Could you name an athlete from them? From then, no. Not even the two women three or four years before Paul came on the scene who had distinguished themselves by winning prizes as the local inscriptions record with pride. Nobody can do that. But we remember Paul. Why do we remember Paul? Well, he's immortalized in Scripture. Obviously, we remember him from that. But Paul completed the course. Paul finished. He was focused. He did what he was supposed to do. And he's telling us to do that likewise. We are to be focused as well. Paul sensed that the Corinthians had become spiritually flabby, that they had been more concerned for pleasant surroundings than for proper spiritual training. The question today is, are you spiritually flabby? And if so, let's, let's get back in shape for the glory of God. Father, I thank you for my friends here at the Lebanon Church, and uh, thank you for the pastor and for what this church has meant to uh, not only Pinebrook and all the things that they have done for us, but also for this community and the testimony and the witness this church has had and continues to have. We give you praise and, and glory for that, and we thank you for it. Lord, there's a, a great community that lives in this area, a lot of people that still do not know you as their Savior. Even though this is somewhat a, a Bible belt, I, I suppose, uh, there are still friends and and relatives and family members and co-workers and neighbors who don't know you as their Savior. The responsibility has been given to us to share our faith with them. You could, as identified by your word, have the rocks cry out. You've chosen not to do that. Rather, you have chosen to make us the light of the world. Purpose for which is to shine brightly so that people will be able to see the path towards heaven. Some here today are good runners, and they're good torch bearers, and they're good lights. And people recognize that, and they want to know about this one that they claim Jesus Christ has saved them. Others of us are not that good when it comes to our light. It's flickering. We may be near the race, but it doesn't seem that we're in the race. Certainly if we are, we're not spiritually fit to run the race. And so opportunity does not come our way when it comes to souls who are interested in knowing how to find Christ. Divine appointments don't seem to be there. I would pray that you would convict us of that. Help us to recognize what Paul says here, that we're in a race. So we need to be focused. We need to be doing what you have called us to do. Help us to be able to have a passion 
for, for souls and for presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And then from that, Lord, may we see great results as people do come to know you, as they do commit their lives to you. Well, thanks for being with us tonight and speaking to us. May we continue to grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.